Today's episode of The Scoop is brought to you by Polkadot Decoded, the Polkadot Community Conference on December 3rd, the first major gathering since the network went live this summer. This free virtual conference has something for everyone, whether you're a blockchain newbie or an experienced developer. Featuring a full program of talks, all aspects of Polkadot will be covered by the teams building the network's core technology as well as those building parachains, applications, and cross-network bridges. Don't miss this opportunity to tap into the latest developments and discover what lies ahead in the Polkadot ecosystem, including Gavin Wood in conversation with Laura Shin and a panel moderated by the Defiant founder, Camilla Russo. Tomorrow's blockchain today, step into the future of Web 3.0 communities at Polkadot Decoded. December 3rd from noon Eastern time. Save your spot at decoded.polkadot.network. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to what is a unique, very interesting episode of The Scoop. It's been a show I've been waiting for with bated breath, and it's it's very timely. We have John Tuttle, Vice Chairman at the New York Stock Exchange, joining us. John has his finger on the pulse of all things capital markets. This has been a unique year, not just for the New York Stock Exchange, but for the IPO market broadly. We've seen SPACs rise from the ashes. It is the year of the SPAC. We're seeing unusual, robust activity in the IPO market, despite the uncertainty of the U.S. election. And uh, Mr. Tuttle is going to break it down for us all. I guess to start things off, a very basic question, and it's one that I'm sure you'll be excited to answer. How's business? Oh, Frank, it's a treat to be with you. And uh, saying I have my finger on the pulse of capital markets, that's too kind. I think the reason why is because I, uh, I follow you on Twitter you know, I read your, all of your stuff. I listen to your podcast. So that's kind of the first ingredient to having. Uh, truly. Yeah, truly to having to having uh, insight into the capital markets. But but great to be with you. It certainly, uh, it certainly is an exciting year. We're, we're in the home stretch of the year, but it's been a year full of surprises. And on all fronts, you know, it's been been a busy year. Uh, so that's on the IPO side, mm-hmm. a busy year for a lot of our listed companies. And of course, the trading side of the market as well. You know, I think that the, at the core, one of the things that I say we're proud of during what has been a arguably very challenging year for so many on so many fronts is that the capital markets remained open, and mm-hmm. you know capital is oxygen for companies. They need it to shore up their balance sheets to make it through challenging times. They need it to be able to play offense and and grow and expand their businesses in all environments, whether it be a positive economic environment and growth environment or one where you had strong headwinds like we've had. For a good chunk of this year, and despite the, the the calls by many, you know, whether they be policymakers, pundits, or investors, and others, to close the markets during what was arguably record volatility, record periods of record volatility, periods of record volume, they stayed open and accessible for companies, for investors, and that's something we're proud of during this time period. So it's been a it's been an exciting year on all fronts. Definitely. I know you sort of, uh, I don't know if grew up is the right word, but you have a special place in your heart for the listings business, I'd say. On the trading side, it's been nice to see the infrastructure stay up across the exchanges, across trading firms. That's been somewhat surprising, but even more surprising, I think, is just the number of deals we've seen 
come to market over the course of 2020. I'm looking at a chart that goes back to 1995. And when we're looking at proceeds raised in the billions, this year is probably one of the most active years since the 90s. And that's, that's relatively surprising, I think, given the uncertainty around the pandemic and the uncertainty around this election. Why do you think companies still grinned and, and bared it to come to the market during this unique period of time? That's a great question, Frank. And I would, I would take a step back and say, going, you know, coming out of 2019, a strong IPO year. Looking at 2020, we thought it was going to be another strong year for the market, at least the first half of the year and what we had, kind of a, the, the pipeline we, had a, we, we knew would be coming to market. You know, historically, the correlation between IPOs, so new equity issuance, primary equity issuance, and uh, market volatility is negative one. So investors and companies want to de-risk as much as possible when markets are spiking up and down. That, that's usually time where you see a, a number of companies decide to pause on their IPO plans. I think what's different about this year is that, yes, we did have that pipeline. And yes, it did slow down as expected when the markets really started uh, moving quite a bit at the end of Q1 and in the first part of Q2, where you saw 5% swings in the S&P on a daily basis. I believe there's a stretch in, forgive me if my numbers are off by one or two, but like 18 sure. out of 20 trading days had the S&P swing over three and a half percent. So, I mean, huge volatility in the marketplace. So we did see things slow down. Now, why did we see things pick up? There are several reasons. One is the increase in IPOs or the resuscitation of IPO activity was driven by one, healthcare companies and biotech companies, life mm-hmm. sciences companies. This profile of company has different funding needs in the market. They're o- they've always been the type of companies that came to the capital markets earlier in their life cycle that access the capital markets to fuel growth and R&D. And so those companies attract, you know, they needed to come to the capital markets, but also a lot of investors were paying a lot of attention to this, this space, given what was going on in, in, uh, around the world with COVID and the pandemic. So we started seeing those companies come to market. Then we started moving up and seeing SPACs come to market. Now, think about it. You know, a, a lot of the reason why operating companies won't come to market during volatile periods is because their valuation will be impacted. You know, maybe their, mm-hmm. their publicly traded comps are down. The investor appetite has waned for whatever reason. Well, a SPAC, from a fundamental valuation perspective, they're pretty easy to value. It's $10 sitting in a trust until a target company is identified. So investors said, hey, look, here's a place where I can allocate capital. And SPACs started coming to market. Then you, you saw the IPO window reopen for a broader group of companies. Those with more predictable subscription-like revenues, like enterprise tech and software companies. And then it opened up even more to consumer tech companies. And now what we've seen is a, is a market and an investor base that has been receptive to a whole host of sectors from a whole host of geographies. And so that has turned it into one of the busiest years for IPOs. Now, there are several other reasons I would tie to that. One is, you know, with Fed projecting interest rates to remain low for a long period of time or for the foreseeable future, a lot of investors are looking at different asset classes and saying, where is the best opportunity for a return? And if you look at fixed income and some other areas, that may not be there if interest rates are hovering around zero. But if you look at equities and the performance, there's a place where you can allocate capital that you can have a, you know, a return greater than zero. So that's one of the reasons. So you see investors waiting uh, towards equities. But I think the most important reason why we've seen a huge uptick in IPOs this year is because of the crisis and what we learned. 
And that is when you are a public company, you have the ability to access capital at market rates. Mm-hmm. When you're a public company, you have an SEC shelf registration. You can raise equity. You can raise debt. You can raise, you know, you can access the market via equity-linked instruments and other pathways. But you can access that capital at market rates. And if you look at the companies that either offensively or defensively, public companies that came to the market during that time period to access capital, and you contrast that with a lot of the financing terms for companies that were still private. Yeah, I mean, there is a huge delta between those two. So given the uncertainty with an election, given the uncertainty with a pandemic in the marketplace, a lot of companies are saying, hey, I'm going to go public later in 2021. 2022 is the plan. I said, you know what? I'm ready now. I have public company ready financials. Let's go. And also investors are starting to reward companies that are coming out in the second or third inning of the ballgame versus the seventh or eighth inning. So let's go now. And I think that's also driven a lot of the activity in the IPO market this year. It's funny because for so many years, the question hanging over the IPO market was why aren't, or rather, why are companies going public so late in the life cycle? Now the question seems almost the opposite of that, which is maybe there's a a concern here with companies going public too early, right? A number of these SPACs, right, are going public before they've generated their first revenues. And a lot of the businesses are kind of selling a dream or vision versus a proven track record. Is that a concern? I mean, look, that's, there are different business models, uh, companies that have different business models that are now coming to market. So if you think EV, you think some of the, um, the technology around autonomous vehicles, yes, uh, a lot of those have not shown meaningful revenues, um, but they have projections to kind of grow and expand. And this is a technology that will, these are technologies that will likely play a bigger role in the marketplace going forward. But if you look at a lot of biotech companies and life sciences companies, similar profile. I mean, zero revenue. They they focus on a lot of R&D with the expectation that when they're commercialized, they're going to generate revenue for whom, you know, for themselves or whomever they're possibly acquired or partnered with. Um, So yeah, different business profiles. But also, I think you're leading me to to another point that I want to make in that we've seen more innovation in the capital markets in the past two to three years than in the preceding two decades. And what do I mean by that is that there are now more pathways to the public markets for companies to consider that are more tailored to their goals. So the well-worn path of the IPO has been around for a long time. It'll continue to be the preferred route for most companies. But now if you think of companies that are going public for different reasons, think of companies that have pursued direct listings, Spotify, Slack, Palantir, Asana, and more to come, they're saying, look, I don't need to raise capital at the time of my listing, but I want the other benefits of being a publicly traded company. So now there's an option for them. We now have an option in place and we're at the kind of two yard line with the final approvals to allow primary capital to be raised as part of the direct listing. So maybe I'm a company that really values efficiency of pricing and I still want to raise primary capital, but I want to do it at the market rate, not via the kind of traditional IPO route. Now I have a pathway. Or with the SPAC where, hey, I'm a company that is a new technology or maybe earlier in my life cycle or may just think that this is the pathway that's best for me because I, it's more of an M&A type construct, more control over the valuation, uh, market timing and, and market conditions are a little, you know, you, you can under index those compared to a uh, traditional IPO. Maybe this is the pathway for me. So there's also more innovation in the capital markets, which is allowing companies 
earlier in their life cycle or at a different phase of their life cycle the opportunity to come to the market. And this has kind of been a long story for the New York Stock Exchange over the past few years. You guys have been trying to cement your position as the leader in direct listings and SPACs. And, and to your point, part of that has been this quest to get approved a direct listing through which you can raise capital. What's the status of that proposal? Yeah. Um, you're right. We've worked on a lot of really fun projects over the past few years. It's fun to talk to companies and stakeholders and say, what are your challenges and how can we create a solution for you? And we're fortunate that we have a unique market model uh, with the right incentives and oversight and technology that allows us to innovate here. And that's why we've been able to pioneer the direct listing. That's why we went from having essentially zero SPACs listed with us in 2017 to the ma majority of, of SPACs and particularly the overwhelming majority of high quality sponsors and larger SPACs. So that's been super fun. Now, following the direct listing, the successful direct listings of Spotify and Slack, we went out and we spoke to investors. We went out and spoke to companies, bankers, lawyers, other market participants, regulators, of course. And we said, how can we continue to evolve and innovate and meet the demands of the marketplace? And there was a demand to raise primary capital as part of a direct listing. And so this was not us like coming up with ideas saying, hey, here's a solution in search of a problem. This is the market telling us that there's demand for continued innovation in the space. So we rolled up our sleeves. We worked with the SEC for over a year and other market participants to innovate on our, on our kind of direct listing 1.0 to create this direct listing we'll call 2.0 that allows you to raise primary capital. And so after you know, a year's worth of time, a lot of discussions with regulators, market participants, on August 26th, the SEC approved our offering. So they, they used a process called delegated authority, which is not to get too far into the inner workings of the SEC, but for a lot of, a lot of proposals that organizations like the New York Stock Exchange or other exchanges make, they defer to the professional staff. So whether that be in trading and markets, corporate finance, or other areas of the SEC to review these proposals, to review the comment letters that have come in, to talk to other participants in the marketplace, and then ultimately make a decision whether to approve or disapprove. And the SEC staff, to their credit, did a lot of diligence. They talked to a lot of people. And then on August 26th, they, they issued their approval order. And in that, what I appreciate is they went out of their way to say, hey, look, what you're proposing New York Stock Exchange is arguably a more democratized process when it comes mm -hmm. to raising equity capital in the public markets. And also, you could argue this is more efficient pricing. So they put those two points in there, which I really think underscored the regulators and the SEC, you know, at the SEC you know, have had capital formation and innovation as pillars of their platform. And, and they see this as helping advance the U.S. capital markets as an endorsement of what we're working on. Now, we green-lighted, we were ready to go. Uh, an industry trade group called the Council of Institutional Investors said, hey, you know, we would like this to be reviewed by the full commission, so the five sure. commissioners. So that puts a, a pause on the approval. So now it's up for review by the, by the five commissioners. So as soon as that's done, we're, we're off to the races. Companies are interested. I would say in three quarters, if not more, of the conversations we have with companies considering going public, they want to know about this option. It may not be the best one for them, but there is a lot of curiosity and a lot of interest in learning more. So we're very close to, uh, to launch. We're talking to companies that are strongly considering doing this. And we look to um, continue to innovate the capital markets with our first direct listing with a capital raise uh, in 2021. Well, so that raises an interesting question about 
the new year, if we're thinking about the ways in which companies can go public, they now have all of these new options on the table, or at least many new options on the table. They'll likely have this primary direct floor listing. They have the traditional, quote unquote, traditional direct listing, the traditional IPO process, and now the SPAC. What do you think the breakup will be if you were to prognosticate, get your crystal ball out in front of you, back in the envelope math percentage breakdown of, of each of those options for 2021? Yeah. Um, so look, we let's start with direct listing. We had one direct listing in 2018. We had one in 19. We had two on the same day in 2020. So uh, that that the, the slope steepened quite quickly, and it'll continue to uh, we'll continue to see more companies choose that pathway. How steep that trajectory will continue into 2021 is is open for discussion. But sure. we'll see more direct listings. We'll see probably a similar trajectory with the direct listing 2.0, with the ability to raise capital. The final green light comes. We'll see a company be a pioneer. We'll see others follow suit, and then we'll see that 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 slope steepen quickly. After that, we'll we'll see a lot of IPOs, at least in the first half of 2021. Everything else held constant, you know, barring any kind of macroeconomic event, any kind of huge resurgence in a second or third wave yeah. of COVID. Any a kind government of, coup by President Trump. Yeah, I mean, you're, <laughs> there's a lot of things that could happen, Frank. Absolutely. Um, so everything else kind of held constant in the world. We'll see a lot of IPOs from a lot of different sectors. And we're going to see a lot of SPAC business combinations. There are over 100 SPACs that are in the market right now looking for a partner company. You know, there is a two-year window for them to get a, you know, to identify a, a partner and then get that transaction completed. So figure what's the hottest, what's the hottest category right now for a target company? Is it is it biotech, fintech? I would say honestly, Frank, every category is hot. Yeah. And I mean that because several reasons. SPACs traditionally we thought of what they did. They went after industrial companies or larger companies or more mature companies. You know, now you see companies earlier in their life cycle, EV companies, biotech companies looking at SPACs. So the, the sector from which the, the target or partner company is going to come from is pretty diverse. Yeah. Uh, so we're going, to see, we're going to see a lot of business combinations of SPACs. Now, when it comes to more, like, what does the pipeline for SPACs look like in 2021? I, mean, I thought 2019 was the year of the SPAC. Clearly, 2020 has been the year of the SPAC, where roughly 50% of the IPO proceeds raised this year have been from SPACs. Will that continue into 2021? I don't think at the same velocity or, or rate. I don't think we're going to see 50% of the IPO proceeds in 2021 be from SPACs, but I think they're probably going to continue to be about 20 to 25 to maybe 30% of the market. So there's still demand for That's significant. Significant. So they're here to stay. A reminder that today's episode is brought to you by Polkadot Dakota, taking place on December 3rd. This is the first major gathering for their community since the network went live this summer. My good friend, Laura Shin, will be speaking there and you don't want to miss her. Best of all, the event is completely free. Take a look at our show notes to sign up today. It's funny when I harken back on my uh, days at at your rival when I was a bushy-tailed young flack. Obviously, since you know the histories, uh, you know the early histories of Nasdaq and Nisey going head to head with each other on the IPO business. There's always these games with numbers, right? So it's like you know we raise the most capital, and and you know Nisey will come back and say, well, not if you incorporate this or you know, the next year, 
it'll be the opposite. And I remember, I think it was 2017 or 2016, they came out with numbers about how they, you know, raised the most capital and, and sort of Nisey, you know, came back and said, well, that's because they're including SPACs, right? And that's when SPACs was a dirty word. And we've kind of seen this evolution. I'm kind of just going down memory lane, but the point I'm trying to make is, is that there's been this evolution of, of the SPAC from like this kind of persona non grata of the capital markets to throw in some Latin to the podcast to this, this incredibly red hot twist to the IPO process to an extent. But they've been around for a while. Yeah. But now yeah. they're, they're cool. Yeah, no. It's, How did that evolution happen? Yeah, it's a great question. And let's look back 10 years or so. Uh, SPACs were a four-letter word 10, 15 years ago. They didn't have the best reputation. The sponsors didn't necessarily have the best interests in mind of investors in the marketplace. And they largely fell out of favor for companies, for investors, and others. Several years ago, you started seeing some rule changes at the SEC, some rule changes around SPACs to address uh, some of those challenges that SPACs had a decade or so ago. And you started seeing, most importantly, higher quality sponsors come into the market. What do I mean by that? Yeah. Um, folks that, whether it be you know the Goldman Sachs or the Gores groups of the world, folks that had very well-respected reputations in the marketplace, both as financial partners, but as business partners as well too. Uh, come to the market. And we really were unable to list SPACs on the New York Stock Exchange until roughly 2017, where we made some rule modifications to allow for SPACs, then the modern SPAC to be listed on the NYSE. And so you started seeing deals be larger in size. You started seeing well-known and well-respected names launch SPACs and partner with SPACs and sponsor SPACs. And so that's, that's what really gave credibility to the, to the product. And then you started seeing companies say, hey, this is actually a better route for me to the public markets. It's actually more tailored to meet my objectives than an IPO, than you know, a strategic sale to another company. This, this makes sense for me. And so you started seeing traction pick up. And that's where you know, we saw our business and SPACs really pick up. And what we're focused on whether it be in IPOs, whether it be in SPACs or in other areas, is quality. And so, so the look, issuers have gotten yeah, a, much more, more higher quality, much more credible, much yeah. higher quality. Uh, and so we said to ourselves, all right, well, look, this is, this is an evolving part of the market. Let's make sure we have the rules in place to allow these folks the opportunity to access capital in the New York Stock Exchange and ultimately list that new co or the newly combined com business combination on the New York Stock Exchange. So we did that. We started talking to the high-level sponsors, the bankers, the law firms, and others, and said, hey, we're here. And what I think is amazing that we went from having 0% market share, and let's say 2016, to in the first half of this year, 83% of SPAC proceeds were raised on the NYC. If you look at the high-quality sponsors, the, the, the well-respected sponsors, and this is not me offering investment advice, to be clear, but the folks who have very well-regarded reputations in the financial markets and in business, the Bill Foley's of the world, the Michael Klein's of the world, the, the Goldman Sachs's of the world, and other yeah. sophisticated sponsors, and even uh, my my former you know partner here at the New York Stock Exchange, Tom Farley, the former right. CEO of the exchange, 
you know, all of them, when they had the option to, uh, to list on the NYC, have, have placed their trust in us because of that market model I talked about earlier that allows us to innovate, that allows us to trade their SPAC with, with better market quality, allows them to de-risk during the business combination. And, um, and so that's how we've, we've been able to track the vast majority of, of, kind of larger, well-known SPACs uh, to our platform. I want to be respectful of your time. There are a few like pandemic related questions that I have in as much as how the pandemic, the unique aspects of this health crisis have changed the way New York Stock Exchange does business. Working at an exchange, covering ex- covering the exchanges, the the sort of back and forth, the the hard fought battles over each IPO are marked with the exchange is pulling out all the stops, right? Whether it's, you know, maybe we'll work on getting you an index or maybe we will, you know, get you to, um, you know, one of my favorite, one of my favorite examples was when the New York Stock Exchange lifted its jeans rule for Levy's IPO, right? Like you have to woo these companies with, with everything you can. And one of the benefits of the New York Stock Exchange or one of the attractive aspects of listing there is ringing that bell and being on the floor, something that, you know, obviously has not been a thing in the midst of COVID. So how do you guys lure and attract public companies? What bells and whistles have you added to the toolkit to mix some metaphors around that's convincing firms to go public on New York Stock Exchange anyway? Yeah, I know. I mean, look, the building is an amazing part of this brand. It's part of our history. It's a platform that's been built up over a long time by a lot of great people. And I, I'm certainly biased when I say this, but I think it's true. The, there are four buildings that define this country, the White mm-hmm. House, the Capitol, the Supreme Court, and the New York Stock Exchange. It's a very special place and has done so many special things for, for companies and investors across the country and around the world. So that being said, us, like most businesses, uh, during the time period, our physical real estate was not accessible. And what it allowed us to do is say, and remind, what it allowed us to do is remind companies that what we are at our core is a place where we bring, where we help you access capital and bring buyers and sellers together. And we do that better than any place on the planet. And so that kind of controlled for all the Ferris wheels and balloons and all the celebratory parts that come along with sure. that, which are important and important part of branding. And we can do it like we can do it better than anybody on the planet, but it brought it back to that core issue. And that's how we list and trade your stock. And we were able to get people to focus on the data and that look coming to the market is about de-risking. It's about saving money for your investors and showing them the data that no matter how you look at it, IPOs are smoother, stocks that trade on the NYC trade with less volatility, tighter spreads, more depth in the order book, all that saving your investors money as they move in and out of your stock, saving you money when you come back to the market as well. It allowed folks to focus on what matters and that's the data. And I think, you know, you mentioned Levi's and all that. It's fun because it's about them, not us. Like you want, they want to come here and change, uh, you know, and celebrate incredible global institutions. Yeah, let's do it. It's about you and showing how you're changing the world. And so look, our building will be back on, you know, I'm in the building right now. You know, we have the floors open. We have folks in here right now. It'll be back. It'll be back better than ever, but we're much more than that. We're an incredible place where we trade stocks better than any place on the planet, saving capital for investors and companies. We have an incredible network of companies that are much more than logos. We bring that to life to really help our listed companies be successful. We have great people to be an extension of their team 
uh, you know, they're an extension of their finance IR marketing team. And so, and then of course we have the building and the space and all that specialness that goes along with that. And so we'll bring that, that last piece back online more and more as we get into 2021. But in the meantime, we've been able to have folks focus on those other parts and have had a very successful year. What have you guys learned from taking the floor traders out of the picture for a few weeks? Did that impact the robustness? Did it impact volatility in terms of trading? Yeah, it's an experiment we, we probably never would have run proactively, but it's something we had always thought about. It's how much of our outperformance do we attribute to the human component on the trading floor versus the market model? And so that's, that's something I want to separate. So the market model is how we incentivize market participants, how we, you know, the obligations we place on market participants to quote in the stock, to be the best quote in the market, to have layered interest above and below in that price in the order book. And then there's the human component that we put on top of that, which, you know, that's that judgment, accountability, that's the human being on the floor communicating uh, with each other. And then underpinning it all is best-in-class technology, lightweight, resilient, the most deterministic in the marketplace. So we took a piece of that, that, that the human component. component offline from, from May, I'm sorry, from March until May. Yeah. And what we saw was while we continued to outperform uh, by all meaningful metrics, any other exchange, it wasn't our full service offering. So we were excited to bring those market participants back into the building, provide that full service market offering, which led to less volatility, you know, more liquidity, um, still, again, outperformed when we operated electronic only. And again, we operate 12 exchanges, seven clearinghouses around the world. At the NYC, we have three exchanges. Two of them are purely electronic. So we, know, we, we test all this stuff, our business continuity plan. So you know what we're doing. But we are glad to bring that last piece back online. And that's that human judgment and human component. Mm-hmm. If you guys were still outperforming, I guess that begs the question of why not just continue without the human floor brokers? If you well, can. Well, still outperforming, outperforming even more with the human judgment and accountability sure. layered on top of that. So I think of it as kind of uh, three prongs. One is that market model. Two is that technology underpinning it. And three is that human judgment that we, we lay on top of all of it. So bringing that human judgment back brings even more outperformance. Yeah. Well, this has been a really interesting, fun conversation. It sped by way too fast. I have to ask the obligatory crypto uh, related question, I guess. <laughs> Have you seen any sort of uptick in you know, companies from that sector looking to go public on New York Stock Exchange? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can t- it's been a space that's been of interest for quite some time, for you know, years and years and years. We've had discussions with companies that have been thinking about accessing the public markets that from that space, you know, crypto, blockchain, um, digital assets, I've been thinking about accessing the public markets. Those conversations continue. They're accelerating. Um, and I also think that you know, digital assets, crypto, they, they're going to play somehow, somewhere, some way, an important role in the market of the future. You know, 50 years ago, people were carrying stock certificates around in bags. Now a lot of stuff's you know, purely electronic when it comes to clearing and settlement. What's it going to look like in 5, 10, 15 years from now? I think a lot of that change and that evolution We'll have the fingerprints of, you know, blockchain of some of the evolution in digital assets. You were an early believer to an extent, Mr. Tuttle. When I interviewed you in 2017, you sang a similar tune. And so are you, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. And we (laughs) we will talk again soon. John, thanks so much for walking us through New York Stock Exchange. Latest activity, SPACs, the year of the SPAC, and so much more. 
We'll talk to you soon. Such a treat. Thanks, Frank.